0: As uh, I think most of us here know, we are uh, in a sermon series on the Gospel of Luke. It's going to take us all summer. We're going to work our way through the entire Gospel. And this is the third um, sermon in this series. uh, But we've had a couple things going on the last few Sundays and so we weren't able to get to this. I actually want to start this morning before I read the passage by just showing a video um, from the folks at the Bible Project. Um, In case you've never heard of the Bible Project, they produce videos uh, about the Bible. It's right there in the name. And uh, as part of that, they actually do really neat, fascinating overview videos of every book of the Bible. And the Gospel of Luke is actually quite long, so they have two of them, and we're going to watch the first one of those uh, that just goes over the first half of the book, and then we'll watch the one that goes over the second half of the book when we get there. So if we could play that.
1: The Gospel According to Luke. It's one of the earliest accounts of Jesus' life, and it's actually part one of a unified two-volume work, Luke-Acts. If you compare the opening lines of both of these books, it's clear that they come from the same author. And there are internal clues in the book of Acts, as well as an early tradition that identifies the author as Luke, the traveling companion and co-worker of Paul the Apostle, who we know was also a doctor. Luke opens his work with a preface telling us how and why he wrote this book. He acknowledges that there's many other fine accounts of Jesus' life out there, but he wanted to go back to the eyewitness traditions of as many early disciples as he could in order to produce what he calls an orderly account about the things that have been fulfilled among us. Now, that word fulfilled shows us why Luke wrote this account. For him, the story of Jesus isn't just ancient history. He wants to show how it's the fulfillment of the long covenant story of God and Israel, and bigger than that, of the story of God in the whole world. The book's design is fairly clear. There's a long introduction that sets up the stories of John the Baptist and Jesus. Then in chapters three to nine, Luke presents a robust portrait of Jesus and his mission in his home region of Galilee. After that, the large midsection of the book is Jesus' long journey to Jerusalem, which leads to the story's climax, Jesus' final week in Jerusalem leading up to his death and resurrection, which then leads on into the book of Acts. In this video, we're just going to focus on the first half of Luke's Gospel. The extended introduction tells, in parallel, the birth stories of John the Baptist and Jesus. So you have this elderly priestly couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and then this young unmarried woman, Mary and Joseph. They both receive an unlikely divine promise that they're going to have a son. Both promises are fulfilled then, as John and then Jesus are born, and both parents sing poems of celebration. Now these poetic songs, they're filled with echoes from the Old Testament, psalms and prophets, showing how these children will fulfill God's ancient promises. But these poems also preview each child's role in the story to follow. So John is the prophetic messenger promised in the Torah and the prophets who's going to prepare Israel to meet their God. And Jesus, he's the messianic king promised to David who's going to bring God's reign over Israel and God's blessing to the nations just like he promised to Abraham. After this, Mary brings Jesus to the Jerusalem temple for his dedication. And two elderly prophets, Anna and Simeon, they see Jesus and they recognize who he is. And Simeon sings his own song, a poem inspired by the prophet Isaiah. He says, this child is God's salvation for Israel and he will become a light to the nations. So with all this anticipation, the story moves forward into the next main section where Luke presents Jesus and his mission. He sets the stage with John's renewal movement at the Jordan River where he's calling a new, repentant, recommitted Israel into existence through baptism. He's preparing for the arrival of God's kingdom. And then Jesus appears as the leader of this new Israel and he's marked out by the spirit and the voice of God from heaven. He is the beloved son of God. After this, Luke follows with the genealogy, and it traces Jesus' origins back to David, then back to Abraham, and then all the way back to Adam from the book of Genesis. Luke's claiming here that Jesus is the messianic king of Israel who will bring God's blessing, but not only to Israel, the family of Abraham. He is here for all the sons of Adam, for all humanity. After this, Luke has strategically placed the story of Jesus going to his hometown, Nazareth, where he launches his public mission. At a synagogue gathering, Jesus stands up and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor and freedom for the prisoners, new sight for the blind and freedom for the oppressed. Now, along with the other Gospels, Jesus is presented here. He's the Messianic King bringing the good news of God's kingdom. But what Luke uniquely highlights are the social implications of Jesus' mission. So he brings freedom. The Greek word is aphasis. It literally means release, and it refers to the ancient Jewish practice of the year of Jubilee, described in Leviticus 25. It's when all Israelite slaves were released, when people's debts were canceled, when land that was sold is returned back to families. It's all a symbolic reenactment of God's liberating justice and mercy. And then Jesus says that this good news of release is specifically for the poor. Now, in the Old Testament, the poor, or in Hebrew, ani, It's a much broader category than just people who don't have very much money. It refers also to people of low social status in their culture, like people with disabilities or women and children and the elderly. It also can include social outsiders, like people of other ethnic groups or people whose poor life choices have placed them outside acceptable religious circles. And Jesus says that God's kingdom is especially good news for these people. So after this, Luke immediately puts in front of us a large block of stories, showing us what Jesus' good news for the poor looks like. It involves the healing of a bedridden sick woman, or a man who has a skin disease, or someone who's paralyzed. There are stories here also about Jesus welcoming into his community a tax collector, like Levi, who's not financially poor, but he is a social outsider. There's a story about Jesus forgiving a prostitute. Luke's showing us how Jesus' kingdom brought restoration and reversal of people's whole life circumstances. He's expanding the circle of people who get invited in to discover the healing power of God's kingdom. And as Jesus' mission attracts a large following, he does something even more provocative. He forms these people into a new Israel by appointing over them the 12 disciples as leaders corresponding to the 12 tribes of Israel. And then Jesus teaches his manifesto of an upside-down kingdom, or as Luke calls it, the Sermon Given on the Plain. He says, God's love for the outsider and the poor means that his kingdom brings a reversal of all of our value systems. He is here to form a new alternative people of God who are going to respond to Jesus' invitation by practicing radical generosity, by serving the poor. People who are going to lead by serving and live by peacemaking and forgiveness. People who are deeply pious but who reject religious hypocrisy. Now, Jesus' radical kingdom vision, his claim to divine authority, it starts to generate resistance and controversy, especially from Israel's religious leaders. His outreach to questionable people, it's a threat to their religious traditions and their sense of social stability. And so they start accusing Jesus of blaspheming God, of being a drunk and mixing with sinners. And so this section culminates in a new revelation of Jesus' mission to his disciples. He says that, yes, he is the messianic king, and that he's going to assert his reign over Israel by dying in Jerusalem, by becoming the suffering servant king of Isaiah 53, who dies for the sins of Israel. And then the shocking idea, it gets explored in the next story as Jesus goes up a mountain with three of his disciples. And he's suddenly transformed in front of them. They're enveloped in this cloud of God's presence who announces, this is my chosen son. And then Moses and Elijah are there, the two other prophets who encountered God's presence and voice on a mountain. And Luke tells us that they're talking together about Jesus' exodus that he was about to fulfill in Jerusalem. Now that Greek word Exodus, it's a clear reference to the Exodus story. Luke is portraying Jesus here as a new Moses who will lead his newly formed Israel into freedom and release from the tyranny of sin and evil and all of its forms, personal, spiritual, and social. And that's going to lead us into the second half of the book. But for now, that's the first half of the gospel according to Luke.
0: So I don't know what you all watch on YouTube, but that's... That's what I watch. It's the first bit of the big picture. Like I said, we'll get to the next video uh, once we get there in the sermon series. For now, Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. Luke chapter 4, 14 through 40, that's on page 834 of the Bibles in the pews. And this is what Luke writes. And we're right in that section of Jesus' mission being unveiled, all right? Jesus returned to Galilee, and the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was preaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to speak, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, and he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the oppre- or, sorry, freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled the scroll back up, handed it to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips, Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will say to me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the whole land. But he was not sent to any of them. Instead, he was sent to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, but none of them were cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They stood up, drove Jesus out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through them and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, they say familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. What that saying means is that it's often the people that you spend the most time with who you also end up having the most problems with. And anyone who's grown up in a family, which is all of us, right, knows that this is true. I love my brother, but I kind of can't stand my brother. I love my sister, but she drives me crazy. I'm glad my kids live close but I'm glad they don't live too close, right? Familiarity breeds contempt. Well, it turns out Jesus actually experienced that too. That's part of what we see going on in this passage this morning. Jesus ends up on the receiving end of some familiar contempt. You see, not long after he starts his ministry, Jesus ends up back in his hometown in Nazareth where he grew up. And at first it seems to go well. But before long, his reception there becomes a little... Mixed. Just to set the scene this morning, Jesus is fresh off his testing by Satan in the wilderness here. In the chapter just before this, Luke chapter 3, Jesus is baptized and commissioned to the ministry that his Father has given him. And then after that, right at the beginning of this chapter, he's led by the Holy Spirit into the desert of Judea to be tempted for 40 days. He confronts Satan, they go toe-to-toe for three full rounds of temptation. Jesus resists and emerges victorious, and after all of that, he's now finally ready to begin his ministry. And so that's what he does. And like a lot of young adults starting something new, he begins in a place he knows. He goes back to his old stomping grounds where he grew up in Galilee, and he begins his ministry of teaching, preaching, healing, and proclaiming the good news of the gospel there. And it goes well. The initial returns are good. The reaction is what you'd hope for. At the beginning of our passage, Luke writes, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. So far, so good, right? Jesus' little ministry startup seems to be going well. At least that is until he gets back to his hometown of Nazareth. Now initially, Jesus actually gets a pretty warm welcome there too, right? It's clear from the way that Luke tells the story that Jesus' hometown has heard about his ministry elsewhere. And so they're excited to have him come home and do the sorts of things among them that he's been doing in other places. And so as a result, when Jesus goes to the town synagogue on the Sabbath and he stands up to speak, the excitement in the air is palpable. In fact, in verse 20, Luke even says the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Just as a side note, but that would have been pretty common uh, for somebody to stand up in the synagogue like that, read some scripture, and then preach a bit on it. Um, in fact, at that, in that time and culture, pretty much any male member of a synagogue would have been able to do that. As Joel Green writes in his commentary on this passage, as this text exemplifies, on the Sabbath, the synagogue was especially the locus for the reading and exposition of scripture, a practice sanctioned with appeal to Mosaic commandment. He talks, he says basically, the, the, even the architecture of a synagogue allowed for this. And then he says, anyone was allowed to speak who had something of significance to say. It'd kind of be like if we came here on worship for a Sunday morning and instead of having a regular preacher each week, like me, we just allowed any of us who felt like we had something to say to stand up, read a bit of scripture, and do that, right? In fact, there are some Christian traditions that actually do do that, I'm thankful I'm not one, part of one of them, but that does actually happen in certain Christian traditions, and that's what happened in Jewish synagogues back then, too. As a visitor back to his hometown, that's what Jesus was doing here as well. He was taking advantage of that custom. He was participating in the Sabbath reading of Scripture, and then he was engaging in the practice of commenting on that Scripture that he had just read. And at least initially, his sermon gets pretty good reviews. Jesus reads from the prophet Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 61, verses one and two. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up the scroll, sits down and says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And it's a bold statement But it actually goes over pretty well, right? Because as Luke says, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? In other words, Jesus' hometown thinks pretty highly of him. They like what they're seeing here. They're on board with what they're hearing. After all, here's this hometown kid, this son of the synagogue, one of their own. He's been out and about in the surrounding area, preaching, teaching, performing miracles and healing, but now he's back home. He's back in the fold, back where he belongs, and it looks like he's gonna do all the stuff that he's done elsewhere too. And again, there's excitement there, right? There's excitement in Nazareth. There's excitement in Jesus' hometown. The atmosphere is charged. The feeling is festive. It's all happening just the way that Jesus' friends and neighbors would have expected it to. The excitement, the rumors, the reports that they had gotten about Jesus' ministry had preceded him. And yet he fits the bill. He lives up to the reports. He lives up to the press. He looks the part. The Spirit of God is on him. He's proclaiming good news, freedom, and the Lord's favor. The miracles are just around the corner. And Nazareth is seeing exactly what they expected of Jesus. And then all of a sudden, just like that, it all shifts. It all changes. You see, it turns out that Jesus had a second part to this sermon that he was preaching that Sabbath day in the Nazareth synagogue. Like we just saw, the first part, reading Isaiah 61 and then telling the congregation that it was all fulfilled in him, that part went over just fine. But in verses 23 through 27, Jesus continues, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only in the Syrian. I'll suffice it to say that this second part of Jesus' sermon here does not go over nearly as well as the first half. As Luke writes, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove Jesus out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. So, what's going on here? What, what's changed? Why does Jesus' hometown go from fastening their eyes on him, speaking well of him, and being amazed at what he's saying? to all of a sudden driving them out of town and trying to throw them off a cliff? Well, the answer to that question actually has to do with the first part of what Jesus says here. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. That's kind of the key to the whole complex situation here. You see, like pretty much everyone else in first century Palestine, the people of Nazareth, they wanted a savior. That's why they were actually fine with Jesus reading Isaiah 61 and telling them that he was fulfilling it. It might sound gutsy to us today, at least that's the way I've always kind of read that, right? Jesus unrolls the scroll of Isaiah, he reads a bit of that prophet, and then he says, this scripture is fulfilled in me, in your hearing, but it turns out that's actually exactly what the people of Nazareth wanted to hear. They wanted someone to come along and fulfill prophecies like that. They wanted someone to come with the spirit of the Lord. They wanted someone to come and proclaim good news, freedom, and the Lord's favor. In other words, they wanted someone to come and fulfill all their hopes and dreams of what God would someday do. You see, the first part of Jesus' sermon here is exactly what the people of Nazareth had been looking forward to. It's, in fact, it's actually what the, the Jewish people as a whole had been looking forward to. They'd been looking forward to someone like Jesus coming and doing the kinds of things that Jesus was doing. And not just for a little while, not just for the last couple of years, but actually for centuries, for millennia, in fact. They'd been waiting, anticipating, yearning for a Savior, and now here he was. Here was someone clearly empowered by God's spirit. He was preaching with authority. He was teaching the way of the Lord. He was performing miracles that no one else could. He was even casting out demons. In other words, Jesus fit the description in Isaiah 61 to a T. And the best part, you want to know the best part, the most exciting part, the part that really got the people of Nazareth going? He was one of them. He was from their town. He'd grown up on their streets. He'd been brought up in that very synagogue where he was preaching. How cool was that? Jesus was the hometown kid, and now here he was come to be their Savior. And Jesus is aware of that. That's what he's talking about in verse 23 when he says, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. That was a fairly well-known saying at the time. And what it literally meant was, Do for your own kind what you do for others. In other words, just like a good doctor doesn't just take care of the patients who come to them, but they also take care of their friends and family members, those that they know and love. What Jesus is saying here is that he knows the people of Nazareth want him to do for them what he's been doing elsewhere too. You're our kind, they're saying to him our kind of people a son of this town so do here in your hometown what we've heard that you've done elsewhere in other words you belong to us you're our kind of savior the savior we want the savior we expect so do the things that we expect that's what's going on here that's the dynamic between Jesus and his hometown and that's the problem too The problem is the people of Nazareth are trying to appropriate Jesus for themselves. They're trying to tie him down and lay claim to him. They're trying to make him their own personal savior. Jesus was everything they'd been hoping for and dreaming of for so long. And now here he was, their hometown kid, their savior come home to do for them what they thought he should. The only problem is that while Jesus was their savior, he wasn't just their savior. He was Nazareth's savior, but he was everyone else's too. And while he had indeed grown up there and was back to minister to them, the truth was that his ministry was about to become a lot broader. And that's what Jesus is getting at in verses 24 through 27 here. Okay, he's trying to reframe Nazareth's expectations. Yes, he is their savior, but he's other people's savior too. And in order to help them understand that, Jesus tells two stories from the Old Testament. The first is from 1 Kings 17, verses 7 through 24. It's the story of the prophet Elijah and the widow at Zarephath. Basically, during the reign of King Ahab, God had the prophet Elijah announce a drought in Israel. Because of their sin and wickedness, the Israelites would have no rain until God told Elijah to say otherwise. And after announcing this, God sent Elijah to live in a ravine by a brook. And after the brook dried up because of the drought, God sent Elijah north to the Phoenician city of Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there, he told Elijah, you will meet a widow and her son, and they'll take care of you. Upon arriving in Zarephath, that's exactly what happens. Elijah meets the widow, and while she doesn't have much to give, God miraculously makes her supplies keep going so that she can continue to feed herself, her son, and Elijah too, sustaining them through the drought. That's the first story that Jesus tells here. The second one is from 2 Kings 5, verses one through 19. It's the story of a Syrian general named Naaman. He was a successful military commander, but he was also afflicted with a skin condition called leprosy. And after hearing about the prophet Elisha from one of his Israelite slaves, he goes to him to be healed. When Naaman comes to him, Elisha tells him to wash seven times in the Jordan River. And there's a bit of hemming and hawing about this because apparently Naaman doesn't wanna wash in the Jordan River, but finally he does, and as a result, he's healed. Those are the two stories that Jesus tells. Both are about Israelite prophets serving the Israelite God, but caring for and providing for non-Israelite people. And that's Jesus' point. I am your Savior, he's saying to the people of Nazareth. But I'm everyone else's too. You can't pin me down. You can't put me in a box. You can't try and make me just the Messiah you want me to be because I haven't come just to save and sanctify you. I've come to save and sanctify everyone else too, all who put their faith in me. As N.T. Wright puts it in his commentary on this passage, this servant Messiah has not come to inflict punishment on the nations, which is the way that the Jewish people would have thought the Messiah was going to operate, but to bring God's love and mercy to them. That's the kind of savior Jesus was. He wasn't just a savior for the Jewish holy huddle. He wasn't just a savior for the good people of Galilee. He wasn't just a savior for the nice people of Nazareth. He was their savior. But he was also so much more than that. He was more than just another prophet, more than just an Israelite Messiah, more than just a hometown kid. He was the savior of the world. And that's what he wanted to make clear here in this text, both to the people back then as well as to us today. I wonder sometimes if we remember that. I wonder sometimes if we remember that Jesus isn't just our Savior, but everyone else's too. I wonder that because as Christians we're kind of notorious for acting like we know who's in and out when it comes to God's chosen people. Um, You know, as uh, basically the way we view it is all the good seatbelt wearing, two-service attending, suburban dwelling folks who look, think, and act like us, they're all in, right? Because they're like us. And we're in. But all the other people, the people with the past, the people who have lived far from God, the people who are still living far from God, they're probably out. And you know what? It's probably best for us not to interact with them so that we don't find ourselves on the outside too. That's how we act sometimes in the church. That's how we think. That's how we imagine the kingdom of God and the people who will be in it. It'll be folks like us. It'll be everyone who looks the way we do. It'll be our kind of people. Like the people of Nazareth, it's very easy for us to think that Jesus is just our Savior. He's just our Lord. We're the ones who get to claim him and no one else. Again, the problem, though, is that that's pretty much the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying here in this text. Because it's not just the good people of Galilee who get to have him. It's not just the nice people of Nazareth. It's not, he's not just a hometown Savior. Rather, his gospel and grace and mercy is for everyone. Sure, they have to accept it. I'm not downplaying the need for uh, repentance and confession here because that part is crucial. The fact of the matter is you don't get God's grace without being willing to accept its impact and implications for your life. God's grace is a two-way road, right? It saves us, but it also sanctifies us through the work of the Holy Spirit. All I'm saying is that that two-way road of God's saving and sanctifying grace is a two-way road with on-ramps. Jesus' grace and gospel is open to anyone who accepts it. It's not limited just to the people he knows and is familiar with. Instead, it's open to everyone else too. And as people who are already familiar with that gospel and grace ourselves, we need to remember that. After all, I think if we really believed that, we'd be more passionate about evangelism. Okay, This is something that's kind of frustrated me in recent years, but I don't get the sense from North American Christians, at least not the North American Christians I talk to, by and large, that we care all that much about evangelism or feel like it's a real front burner or important issue in the church. And full disclosure, I say that as somebody who previously didn't care much about evangelism myself, either. Um, You see, I used to be a big social justice guy. I still am, actually, okay? Uh, that's because social justice, biblically speaking, and I know it's been co-opted politically in in our whole political narrative in this country and stuff, but as Christians, we don't think first and foremost politically. We think first and foremost biblically. So biblically speaking, social justice is simply about striving for the world that God intended in the beginning. God made this world good and just and equitable and right. And so that's the world he's working to restore. Restore. And that's his justice. It's simply his process of restoring his creation to the way that it's supposed to be. And as his people, as people who claim his name and say that we follow him and care about the things that he cares about, we are called to participate in that too. So I, as a Christian, I don't care about social justice because some political movement or party tells me to. I care about social justice as a Christian because the Bible tells me to. The problem is, and I know I'm not alone in this because I see many other Christians fall into this ditch as well, I used to care about social justice to the exclusion of evangelism. Okay? You see, people kind of like to pit those two things together. Well, you can care about social justice or you can care about evangelism, but you can't care about both. You can take care of people's needs or you can take care of their souls, but you've got to pick one or the other. You can save them from poverty or you can save them from hell, but you can't save them from both. And that's what I used to kind of think too. I used to repeat St. Francis of Assisi's supposed quote, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary use words and I would think yes that's it. My pursuit of justice will be my evangelism. I will show people the kingdom and then if necessary I'll tell them about the kingdom of God too. And while I do still think there's something to that, there's something to living out our faith in such a way that others can tangibly experience it and see it, I've also come to realize that that's not the full picture. Because the truth is that we should use words when we preach the gospel. And not just every once in a while, not occasionally, not just when it seems necessary, but all the time. And so in recent years, I've started to care a lot more about evangelism, both personally, for myself, as something I practice in my own life, but also for the church. After all, we're evangelicals, right? It's right there in our name, evangelism, okay? We're supposedly the kind of Christians who care about sharing our faith and telling others about Jesus. And yet what frustrates me is that I'm not sure that we really do. You know, we might put a bumper sticker fish in our car or a sign in our yard that says keep Christ in Christmas or every once in a while share a pseudo-Christian link on social media. But do we really think that amounts to an effective evangelism strategy? Because the non-Christians I talk with, they're not convinced by any of that. In fact, it actually, more often than not, it turns them off to the faith more than anything, especially when we're cutting them off with our bumper sticker fish car, okay? It's not like they're sitting there and they're, they're watching that and they're going, oh, well that's probably just a really nice Christian who just, you know, needed to merge lanes and they're having a bad day. You know what they think? Typical Christian. Our actions matter. And don't worry, we're gonna do a whole sermon series on evangelism at some point. We'll get to more effective strategies for evangelism then. To bring this back to this passage, I can't help but wonder if at least part of why we're not good at evangelism these days is because we kind of like it when the only other people that Jesus saves are people just like us. You see, evangelism is messy. It's gritty. It's hard to believe that Jesus is the savior of the people who aren't like us, don't look like us, don't like us, and who we don't like. You know why? because evangelism is preaching the gospel to sinners. And then it's inviting those sinners into this place, not just a place like this, this place, this sanctuary, this church, this family of Christian believers. It's inviting those sinners to become our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's inviting those sinners to fellowship with us, to rub shoulders with us, to push and challenge and sanctify us as we push and challenge and sanctify them. It's even a step further than that. It's inviting those sinners into our homes and our families and our lives. And I know that that's a countercultural thing to say in family-oriented West Michigan, but I can't help but think that sometimes our nuclear families actually become an idol that stands in the way of us doing this kind of work. Because when we never allow others into our orbit and into our sphere of influence, we are not being the Christian family that we are called to be, inviting others in. And don't worry, we'll do a sermon series on that someday too. In a word, evangelism is realizing that Jesus isn't just our savior. He's not just the savior of the good people of Galilee, the nice people of Nazareth, the people who look and think and act just like us. Instead, evangelism requires realizing that Jesus is everyone else's savior too. And then it requires realizing that we need to tell them that. After all, that's the gospel. I like how N.T. Wright sums up his commentary on this passage. He writes, The message, this message of what kind of Savior Jesus is, was and remains shocking. And it is. Jesus claimed to be reaching out with healing to all people, though itself a vital Jewish idea, was not what most first century Jews wanted or expected. I would say it's not what most first century or 21st century Christians want or expect either. As we shall see, Jesus coupled it with severe warnings to his own countrymen, unless they could see that this was the time for God to be gracious, unless they abandoned their feudal dreams of military victory over their national enemies, like the people of Phoenicia in Zarephath in the region of Sidon, like the Syrians, they would suffer defeat themselves at every level, military, political, and theological. Here, as at the climax of the gospel story, the crucifixion, Jesus' challenge and warning brings about a violent reaction the gospel still does this today when it challenges all interests and agendas with the news of god's surprising grace but that's just it god's grace does surprise it surprised the people of nazareth back then it surprises us still today and you want to know the surpri- the most surprising part of god's grace it's for us we were sinners too We needed a savior, and I am beyond grateful that Jesus did not limit his grace in such a way that we could not experience it ourselves. Let's not limit it either. Let's help others know and experience that grace. As the people of Jesus, those that he has saved and sanctified ourselves, let's help others know and experience him. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Oh, Lord, you're not always the God that we expect. You don't always do the things that we expect. And your son didn't always do or look the way that people expected either. In fact, you still continue to surprise us today. But thank you for not limiting your grace. Thank you for including us in this family of believers. And God, make us people who want to go out and share the gospel good news that we have received with others so that they can come into this family too. Lead us by your Holy Spirit. Give us the words to speak in those moments. And help us to be people who proclaim Jesus as Messiah and Lord with our actions, with our words, and always. In Jesus' name, amen.